It is uh, exciting this morning to uh, to be starting a, a new series for the summer. Uh, taking a, a break from the Gospel of John. We finished John chapter 6, as I promised we would eventually. Uh, we, we made it all the way through. Someday we'll finish the whole Gospel, if you guys can, can think that far ahead into the future. Just imagine with me that point in time. But uh, I wanted to take uh, the next uh, several weeks and, and do a, a series on the church. Uh, on what the church is is called to be and what the church is called to do uh, in the world or around us. And uh, I, I would invite you to to open with me to, to Genesis chapter 1. We're, we're going to start there. We're not going to end there, but that's where we're going to to start. And as, you, as you're turning there, just to the very beginning of your Bibles, there's a, a quote from C.S. Lewis. And he, he said this. He said, I believe in Christianity... As I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. So if you you think about that quote, C.S. Lewis is is saying, hey, I I believe that Christianity is true because obviously it it is clear to see that it is true. It's just like it's easy to see that the sun exists when it's there in the sky. But he also says he, he believes in the sun and he knows that the sun has arisen because the sun allows him to see everything else clearly. And that is exactly what Christianity does. Christianity is to be believed because it is clearly seen to be true. And it is to be believed because it helps us to clearly see everything else in the world around us. And and I would say this, with everything that's taking place... Uh, in, in recent events, has anybody else felt the need for wisdom? If it felt the, the need for, for understanding and kind of just been at a loss of, of how to, to process all of the information? I, I go onto social media and I kind of feel like it's information overload, right? Uh, somebody said that, that, that right now this is, this is evidence that we were not created to be omnipotent and omniscient. That there's a certain limitation to how much information that we can take in and process. And then we kind of just feel we're overloaded. We're at max capacity. And that's where we depend upon an omnipotent, an omniscient, and infinitely wise God to process through all of these things. We need wisdom and understanding and the ability to make sense of our world. And biblical Christianity gives us the best explanation, the best understanding of the world around us. It helps us to to understand and identify the good, the beautiful, and the true. Those are important things to keep in mind. If if it helps us to understand the good, the beautiful, and the true, it also helps us to see and to identify the bad, the ugly, and the false. And so we need to understand all that the Bible teaches if we are going to rightly understand the world. And we need the Bible to, to tell us how to have a right perspective on the past, how to have a right understanding of the present. That's where we feel the most weight, right? Of how do I process everything that's taking place? But then we also need the Bible to have a right understanding of the future, uh, and a right view of what is to take place. And, and the reason that this is so important is if we don't have a, a big picture of the world, if we don't have uh, the, the picture of the puzzle, you guys ever do puzzles and, and what are you constantly referring to? 
the box or if, if it's a new puzzle that has like a big poster that comes with it. You're like, yes. Uh, but, but if you're doing that puzzle and you're trying to understand where things fit in, you're constantly referring back to the puzzle box. Well, what is the big picture? And if uh, imagine trying to do a puzzle, but you don't have the box, right? You, you have this puzzle piece and I have, I have no idea what to do with this. I have no idea where it fits in. And so we need that big picture understanding of the world around us, that big picture understanding of human history. That way we, we have something to refer to. And, and that way when, when the world is constantly sending us puzzle pieces, little bits of information, we, we can easily see it and pick it up and say, this doesn't fit in the puzzle. This, this is uh, something else and it needs to be rejected. It doesn't fit into what God has said the world, uh, how the world runs and how he has created it to be. And if it doesn't fit in this puzzle, then I know to set it aside and to be aware of it. Uh, but if we don't have that, that big picture, we will accept anything. And then our puzzle just looks like a mess. And we feel ill at ease because, yeah, we, we know that there's one piece missing in the puzzle. How do we feel? Yeah, just we're like, oh, yeah, we're like, we're majorly bumped. But that creates a greater unease in our hearts and in our souls when we can't make sense of life. And so understanding the big picture is so important. But what is the big picture of humanity? And where does the church fit into that? And where do we fit in? And that's where at the, at the beginning of this series on the church, I thought it would be fitting to look at the church in God's plan. Now, what is the, the big picture of human history and where does the church fit into that? And what I want to look at this morning is specifically two, two understandings that give us perspective as we live at this present time. Two understandings that we must develop as Christians if we are going to understand the world around us, fallen as it is, if we're going to, to be faithful in what the Lord has called us to, which we're going to be looking at in future weeks. If we're going to make sense of all of that, we have to have a big picture understanding. And that big picture understanding is, is going to fill in over time. Wow. So what I typically do, I don't know what you guys do when you have puzzles. What's the first thing you guys do? Edges, right? Yeah, you, you, you do the border, right? You say, okay, everything's going to fit into this. That's what we're doing right now. Saying, hey, here, here's the, here are the edge pieces. And then as you continue in the Christian life, you're going to fill in everything else. Usually you're going to sort it into categories of, okay, the barn's over here and the water's over here and the sky. I'll leave that for last because that's just hard stuff, right? Uh, but, but that's what we're going to do this morning. We're, we're going to fill in the edges with these two understandings and then we're going to fill in the rest of the, the puzzle in the, in the future weeks. But the, the first understanding that I want to look at this morning is understanding the big picture of human history. And I've said this many times before, and the youth students have had it hammered into their brains. Uh, and the big picture of the Bible, the big picture of human history, can be summarized in a, in a simple statement that we'll walk through. Uh, redemption in Christ for the glory of God. That is what God is doing in and through human history. He is seeking to save a people for himself and he's going to save a people for himself through the person and work of his son jesus christ and then he's going to do all of that for his own glory redemption in christ for the glory of god and and so that's the the big 
picture of human history. And then there's going to be six smaller pictures, which I think I have some, some unforgettable artwork uh, up here that, that we'll get to see. Unforgettable artwork, again, with the youth students. My drawing is not very good. Usually I have a whiteboard. Uh, and it, it's not advanced drawing, but it's unforgettable, and usually in how bad it is. So it sticks in your brain. Uh, things can be unforgettable, even if they're bad. Uh, and so th- there's some, some six smaller pictures there that's going to help us walk through and develop the edges to our puzzle. Uh, what's the big picture of human history? Well, it can be stated in this way that the first stage in human history is creation. Uh, in Genesis 1 and 2, you guys all know Genesis 1 1. In the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. And Genesis 1 is going to fill in the six days of creation. The first three days, God forms things. And then in the next three days, days four, five, and six, he fills those things. He, he forms the heavens in day one. Uh, he forms and separates uh, the skies and the waters in day two. He forms the land in day three. And then he goes back around and he fills or populates each of those. Day four, he populates the heavens. Day five, he populates the sky and the waters. And day six, he populates the land. He creates the beasts of the field and he creates the pinnacle of his creation. Humanity. And if you look with me at Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28, very important verses. And God said, let us make in man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So what what we see is that That mankind, humanity, is created as the pinnacle of God's creation. Man and woman created in the image of God, and they are commanded to exercise dominion. And that is, that is kingly language. So to a certain extent, you could, you could think of Adam and Eve in this way, that they were the Duke and the Duchess of the earth. That they were to operate under the sovereignty of King God, of the sovereign King of the world. They are to operate and and exercise dominion over his creation, and they were to be a reflection of God. They are to be imagers of God for his creation. That is what they were called to do. And all of that was very good, we see in Genesis 1. 31. Genesis 2 is going to be uh, a, a view of the sixth day. It's not a new creation. It's not something else. It's, it's a detailed account of what happens on day six. Now, and that is what we must first understand in the big picture of human history, that God initially desired to bless his creation. He initially desired to bless humanity. He is a good and kind and loving God. And then comes the next portion. Then comes the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 3. Uh, and this could be uh, diagrammed as just a, an arrow downward. So you see my... Do we have the, uh, the the unforgettable artwork? There it is. Voila. So we have creation, uh, and then we have the fall uh, in Genesis 3. And uh, what we're going to see that Adam and Eve fell into sin, they're going to fail in their role as the, the duke and duchess of the earth. 
they are not going to, to do what they were called to do. They are going to, to believe the, the lies of Satan rather than trusting and obeying the word of God. And ultimately, they are going to rebel against the loving God who created them. And, and their sin led to the, the curse of all creation. If you look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 17 and following, God, as a part of the curse, he said to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you, and in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The Apostle Paul, speaking in Romans 8, is going to, to, to comment on this as well. And he says this, For the creation itself waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Paul saying that the curse upon the entire earth causes the creation to groan under the weight of it. That now we live in a fallen world. And so if we just even have that understanding, if we live in a fallen world, what should we expect? Hardship, right? Providing for your family is going to be hard now. Living in, in a world where everybody is a sinner, you're going to sin, people are going to sin against you. Those are the expectations we should now develop if we understand we live in a fallen world. And so we, we see in Genesis 3, sin enters into the world and, and the curse. And then what is Genesis 4, just as you look at the chapter heading? Cain and Abel. You know, you're familiar with that story. And, and the point there, yes, uh, one brother murders another. But, but the bigger point is what happens with sin. Sin passed to the next generation. It didn't just stay with Adam and Eve. It, it went forward. And then Genesis 5, everyone's favorite part, genealogies. Right? Everyone's favorite part of Scripture. Like, I just, I live and die for that. Uh, actually, it, that's pun intended in Genesis 5, because the point of Genesis 5 is over and over again, you see at the end of each uh, couple of verses, it says, and he died, 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 and you, and you get the sense of, okay, what did God promise if, if they ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what would take place? They would die. So we see sin entering into and continuing forward into the human race. What we also see, if you turn over to Genesis chapter 6, is that that sin permeated every generation, but it also permeated every person and every part of our being. Genesis, Genesis 6 chapter 5 says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's what we see, that, that we now live in a fallen world, but a, but a question looms. What is, what is the hope for humanity? 
Now, we are now living under the weight and under the curse of sin. And is there any hope for God's creation? But if you turn back to Genesis 3, verse 15, very important verse. In, in the middle of God's pronouncement of the curse, as he is speaking to the serpent, as he is speaking to the woman, as he's speaking to the man, he begins with the serpent. In verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly shall you go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And what we have there is the the promise that there will come somebody all the details that we have at this moment in time are that the seed of a woman is going to crush the head of the serpent but we have the promise of a future redeemer and that is where our hope is to be found and what we see in in genesis 5 is that lamech the the father of noah thinks that his son is going to be the one to, to end the curse if you look at genesis chapter 5 verses 28 and 29 that when, when Noah was, was born, his father cries out and says, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Well, that's not going to happen, but something else is going to happen in Noah's day, uh, and uh, that's going to be judgment. But what we're going to see as, as the Old Testament progresses, what we're going to see and, and get more and more details about who this promised Redeemer is going to be, Genesis chapter 12 is going to reveal that it's someone in the line of Abraham. Uh, It's a very important uh, passage. And then God promises to make Abraham into a great nation. Uh, And that nation is going to be the nation of Israel. If you turn over to Exodus chapter 19, what we see that that God was intending the nation of Israel to, to do something similar to what he called Adam and Eve to be. Adam and Eve were created to to be the duke and duchess, to to reign over God's creation under his sovereignty. And the nation of Israel, they were called to represent God to the other nations. Look with me, Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Israel is intended to be a kingdom of priests, and a priest was a mediator. If you think about that, again, in the... In the Roman Catholic system, people aren't encouraged to go directly to God. Who are they encouraged to go to? They go to the priest, and then what does the priest do? The priest then goes on behalf of that person to God. And that's what the nation of Israel was to be, that they were to be the nation, the kingdom of priests, that all of the other nations came to, to have a right relationship with God, the Creator, the one true God. And so there is a sense in which Israel was called to be the kingdom of God on the earth. They were called to be a theocracy. They were a a nation to be ruled over by God. He would be their king and they were to live under his rule. But ultimately, they reject that. 
First Samuel, the people are going to reject a theocracy in favor of a monarchy. You say, God, we want a human king to rule over us. And through the, the course of the Old Testament, we're, we're going to see that even though Israel has God's word, they don't have a heart for God. And that is what is most important. They're, they're still living under the curse. They're still enslaved to sin. And, and over the remainder of the Old Testament, we see that the sinfulness of humanity demonstrated in the nation of Israel... And God continues to promise a future redeemer. And that's what we saw in, in Jeremiah as we read that the last couple of months, right? That God promises to finally give his people what they need most. A new heart. What, what they need is his word written upon their hearts so that they are now able to, to love God and to obey him. And all of this finally leads to the New Testament and the arrival of the, the promised redeemer. This brings us to that next stage in human history, the redemption, uh, the life of Jesus Christ, of what he accomplished on our behalf. That he is the, the king in the line of David, the Messiah, the second Adam, who is going to do what Adam failed to do. All of those things are what we see in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He is the one who came to free his people from their sin. He came as the king of the Jews, but did they accept him? No, they rejected him. If you turn over with me to Matthew chapter 22. This is what we see. Jesus tells a parable about this. That Jesus came, presented himself to the nation of Israel, and the nation rejected him. They didn't want him as their king. So in Matthew 22, Jesus tells this parable of the wedding feast, beginning in verse 1. And Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off one to his farm and another to his business while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. And that is that is a description of the Old Testament. That is a description of the promises of God going forth to the people of Israel. And what did they do? They rejected them. God sent his servants and ultimately his son. And what did they do with all of those servants and, and then his son, Jesus Christ? They rejected and ultimately murdered them. But then let's continue. So then the rejection of Israel leads to this. The king was angry, verse 7, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. So what does Jesus say should take place? Israel rejected him. So he says, okay, fine. Now this message of forgiveness, this message of 
reconciliation with the God who has created us, who's given us life and breath and everything, that message will now go forth to everyone else, to the nations. The message of the gospel was now sent out to the, the ends of the earth. And that message of the gospel is that Jesus, after living a, a perfect life, after dying a sacrificial death, he is now uh, raised from the dead and ascended into heaven. He paid the penalty for sin, and now he was accepted by God the Father, and he is ruling at his Father's right hand, waiting till that time when he will return. And after Jesus was raised, he spent some time with his disciples. He spent 40 days teaching them about the kingdom of God, of what was going to take place when he returns to the earth. And then he ascended into heaven. That's what we see in Acts chapter 1. And so after the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, he ascends into heaven. And then we enter a new phase, anticipation. And from that point forward, the disciples were waiting for Jesus to return. And all those who have come to believe in Jesus since that point are in this phase. Okay, well, we look back uh, at what Jesus accomplished on the cross and we look forward to his future return. See that? We have the unforgettable artwork there. See that one arrow has, has two or one line has two arrows on it? That's clever. Uh, but that's what we see in this anticipation phase. And then finally... The sixth stage of human history is going to be restoration. When Jesus came for the first time, he came to pay the penalty for sin. He came to ransom a people for himself. But when he comes the second time, he is going to come in judgment. He's going to come to usher in his kingdom. What Acts chapter 3 refers to as the period of the restoration of all things. That is what Jesus is going to come to do. And the Apostle Peter speaks of this in Acts chapter 3, as I mentioned, in verse 21. And he even quotes and and refers to the Old Testament prophets. And he says, they understood the big picture. And now Peter and the other apostles are proclaiming the big picture. And this is what we must understand. The big picture of human history. And, and, And we have to understand it because this is the story that we fit into. We, we have to, to understand it because this story gives us perspective on the past. It gives us a, a lens to see and interpret the present clearly. And it gives us an, an expectation of hope for the future. And so I know that was a, a lot of information thrown at you very quickly. And we'll come up for air very briefly. Uh, but again, of, of talking about the, the importance of having this understanding. Uh, of understanding the big picture of the Bible and of human history. Because, again, our, our world around us is constantly trying to, to reshape that history. They are constantly trying to retell the story of human existence. Because, again, of that, that story is so important. We always try to, to put ourselves into a story. That's how we make sense of things. Again, if we don't know what story we are in, we don't know what we are called to do. If we don't know the the true story of humanity as it is presented to us in the inspired and inerrant word of God, then we will accept any story that comes our way because we have no measurement of what is true and what is false. And so understanding history is so important. And and let me give you a little bit of an an illustration of this, okay? 
Now, something you may not know, unless you're just an absolute history buff, is that for, for 400 years, there was this nation in Eastern Europe. It was called the, the Grand Duchy of Poland and Lithuania. Right? Everyone's heard of that, right? But it existed for 400 years. But in the late 1700s, 1790s, why does the, the, the American nation w- was establishing itself? This nation, the Grand Duchy of Poland and Lithuania, was, was being destroyed. And it was dying without a fight. And these three other nations, Russia, Austria, and Prussia, just began to, to annex the land. They began to just gobble up and say, oh, well, this now belongs to me. And, and Poland and Lithuania was so weak that they could do nothing about it. And so this nation was completely gobbled up. It no longer existed politically. But when a nation just disappears overnight, it doesn't completely disappear. Because even though there's no, there's no political realm, there's still a people. There's still a history. There's still a language. There's still art and music and all of these things. And so most of the territory was taken by Russia. And when that happened, and they're trying to now incorporate in this Polish and Jewish population, guess what they, they did? They began to rewrite history. They called it a process of Russification. And they sought to erase all of the old Polish language, history, and culture and to replace it with a new Russian version of things. It's amazing to think about. And the Russian version of history was that all of those lands that had belonged to Poland and Lithuania were actually lands that that belonged to Russia. And that Russia was just recovering what was already hers, so to speak. And and the the Empress Catherine, who was ruling at that time, she had a a victorious medal created and, and etched or engraved with this inscription, that which was torn away, I have recovered. And so this process of, of Russification is taking place in Poland and Lithuania. And so the, the Polish and Jewish populations there, they had a huge problem on their hands. Right? How do they, how do they educate their children without handing them over completely and unconditionally to the Russian ambitions, right? If they send their their kids to the Russian schools, their whole nation disappears. Their culture, their history will will be struck from them. That's how important history is. And who is it that's teaching history? And, And if you can get someone to forget history... I have a quote here from Karl Marx. It says, if you can separate a person from his history, you can convince him of almost anything. Think about that. If you don't understand the context, if you don't understand what has taken place in the past leading up to the present, you'll believe anything. That's what, that's what 19th century Russia understood. Hey, we, we need to erase the past. We need to make it disappear. We need to give, but you can't just make the past completely disappear. You have to create a new, a new story, a new history. So they said, hey, these lands have always belonged to Russia. And that, that's the power of story, the power of history. 
And the, the Russian Empire understood it, and God understands it as well. And God understands it because he created it to be that way. He created the power of story, and he gave us the story in his word. And we have to know that story. We have to remember that story. We have to teach that story to our children and and to others. And we have to live our lives in light of that story. We have have to place ourselves inside of that. Okay, say, hey, here's here's the framework and then here's where I am. That's what we have to understand. And if we understand the big picture of human history, it gives us perspective. And you may say, well, what do you mean? Well, we'll take, for instance, everything that's been taking place, all of the injustice that we have seen around us. When we have a a big picture view, when we have that perspective, we understand something about injustice. That every single injustice that has ever been committed will ultimately be judged in one of two places. On the cross of Jesus or at the final judgment at the great white throne. Every single injustice. For those who are believers, every one of our sins has been judged on the cross. That every one of our sins was paid for by Jesus when he died in our place. And so we don't have to to be outraged at the sin of another believer because their sin was already paid for. And the sins of every unbeliever will ultimately be paid for at a different point in time. They will be justified or receive justice at the end of time, at the final judgment. And when when we know and understand this big picture, then we're not all in knots when we experience injustice in this life. And we just simply remember, God is going to bring about justice. Everything that we're seeing around us, will God make it right? Yeah. Will every single person be recompensed for what they have done? Yeah, absolutely. And so we don't have to to feel like we have to execute vengeance, that we have to, to go and met out justice. Romans 12, verse 19, Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God for it is written vengeance is mine I will repay says the Lord and having that big picture view helps us to to know and then entrust ourselves to a holy God who judges righteously so that's the the big picture of human history why it's important and how it can help us to make sense of the here and now but then you may say where does the church fit in it brings us to our second understanding that Understanding the church's place in human history. Now, there are a couple of different ways of using the word church. In our modern vernacular, we often use church just to describe a building. Right? But the Bible doesn't use that word to describe a building. The Bible uses the word church to describe a people. And you can use the word church to refer to the people of a local church. That's a church with a, a lowercase c. And that refers to the community of those who have been called out by God from their slavery to sin through faith in Jesus Christ. Who who gather together to to worship Christ. And the Greek word translated uh, as church is the Greek word ekklesia, which means those who are called out. 
It's the idea of a, of a congregation or a gathering who have been called out for a specific purpose. You know, there's the local church in that concept. And you can also differentiate uh, the visible from the invisible church. Okay, The visible church, and, and why we have to differentiate between those two, is that Christ says that not everyone who claims his name is actually a, a believer, not actually a disciple. Uh, and so the visible church would be made of everyone who claims to follow Christ, and the invisible church are actually those who are actually believers. We can create that differentiation. But then there's also the universal church, a church with a capital C, which refers to every single Christian throughout the church age. Okay? But then what is the church age? You might be thinking that you missed that on the timeline. You said, Thomas, that wasn't in your unforgettable artwork. Uh, and because all of that unforgettable artwork is etched into your memories, I hope. But, but within that big picture of history we live in the anticipation phase that is the church age when when the church is called to look forwards and backwards and the church age has both a beginning and it will have an end the the church age began on the day of pentecost when the holy spirit came and and indwelt the first believers and the church age will end when christ raptures his church uh, and brings us to be into his presence in the future with him. And we have to understand that the church age has a beginning and it has an end. And the church age ends at the rapture. And at that point in time, God will resume his program with Israel. And we're getting into the reality of the, the church is distinct from Old Testament Israel. They're both the people of God, but they have uh, distinct plans in God's program, uh, which is a, a much lengthier question. And you know what? Uh, I can make a plug for the equipping hour. Bruce will answer all of those questions uh, on Sunday, June 21st, when in the practical theology class, he covers eschatology. So uh, I'll, I'll speed through because uh, we're running out of time. Uh, Bruce will, will cover those programs, but understanding the church is separate and distinct from Israel, but the church is the kingdom of God, that there will be a future coming kingdom of God uh, when Christ comes and literally establishes a physical kingdom on the earth. But right now there is a a spiritual kingdom uh, where the the spiritual promises that God made to Israel are going forth to the nations, even as we read in Matthew chapter 22. And what we are seeing now is the church is made up of future kingdom citizens that we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom which has not yet been established and we serve a king who is not physically present with us but who will one day come and rule and reign on the earth so all of this is is important because it transforms how we look at the church and how we look at ourselves okay and this is why the the big picture understanding of how the church fits into human history is important Because the typical view in the American church is that the church is like a country club, right? That it's a club that you join. Uh, It's an organization that you pursue membership in so that you can enjoy the privileges and benefits of that club, right? And sure, you you may have to pay the club dues and be involved in one or two things, but the the point is that you are in the club. You are in the church. That's that's the typical American perspective of 
the church. But if the, if the club is a, if the church is a club to be joined, if you have that perspective, it's going to have some implications. If it's, if it's a club that you join, it's also a club that you can easily unjoin and remove yourself from. And if you view the church as a mere club, you'll probably transition from, from club to club quite often, looking for the one that you like the best. If the church is, is only a club, then I, as an individual, am only a club member. I got my Costco card and my mask. Uh, and if we are just club members, then I'm committed to the club because I like the benefits. I like what the club offers to me. And then when the club no longer meets my needs or fulfills the benefits that I want it to fulfill, what am I tempted to do? I will depart from the club. And if we view the church as a mere club, this might also happen. What happened when the culture says the club is bad? What will we be tempted to do? To abandon the club. And guys, I think that that time is rapidly approaching when the culture around us is going to say, if you are involved in a church that proclaims the Bible, that believes Scripture as the the inerrant Word of God, if if you are going to proclaim Jesus as the only way, then you are going to be... uh, experiencing the the full pressure and oppression that we are seeing companies come under. Right? Have you guys seen on social media right now the the amount of pressure that companies are under to say something about all that's taking place? Kind of to do that virtue signaling, that identification of of something? Guys, that's that's what's going to take place. It's a New York Times article this week that encouraged uh, not returning the text messages of family members unless they begin to, to act a certain way. It was in the New York Times. This time is coming and we need to prepare ourselves. If the church is only a club, then we are going to be tempted to abandon that club when the culture begins to attack. So we have to change how we view the church. It's not a country club. The church is a bound together people who are following Jesus. They are kingdom citizens who are submitting themselves to the lordship of Christ. And we have to understand that. That we don't join the church because of the benefits that we receive. We don't join the church because of anything else. We, we join the church because this is what is commanded us by the Lord. We're commanded to gather with his people, to worship him, to study his word, to walk in fellowship with other believers and to witness to the world around us. That's what we are called to do. When we understand the church's place in history, suddenly the church is not about me. It's about obeying the great commandments to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength to love your neighbor as yourself, and it's about fulfilling the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that Jesus has commanded. Suddenly the church is no longer about us. It is about pursuing, worshiping, and submitting to Christ. 
That is where the church fits into human history. And that informs how we are to live in the present. We are to live as, as strangers in a foreign land. 1 Peter 2.11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. Peter says, hey, you guys are just walking through this land. You are in exile from your home country. Live accordingly. We are also to live at this present time. When we understand where the church fits into human history, we are called to live, you could say it this way, with cross eyes. Right? You're like, what are you saying? Okay, let's bear, bear with me here. Uh, that we are called to keep one eye on the cross of Jesus Christ. That we are called to, to live with him in view. Christ crucified. With the other eye, we are called to keep an eye looking forward to his future return. And we could do the, I guess it's called wall-eyed when your eyes go out and cross-eyed when you go that. So either works, but I like cross-eyed better because if we have our eyes crossed and we see the present, what's right in front of us in light of those two realities of what Christ has done and what he is coming to do in the future. We look forward to the return of Christ. And then if we have one eye on the future, we are called to live faithfully as we wait for him to return. It's an imminent return. Fancy word for saying it could happen at any moment. And that's what we we have to be ready for. And that is a is a life altering truth, isn't it? Like what if Jesus came right now? Or six hours from now, or whatever that time is, of, of you would begin to live differently. So we have to keep in mind, I love this passage in Titus 2 that really summarizes everything that we've been looking at this morning. Titus 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's what we have to begin to see and understand, that the big picture, understanding the big scope of human history and where the church fits into human history. And all of this is important for us as a young church. That's why I'm doing this series on the church, because it's important for us to to know what we are uniting around. What what is the, the church? What are we called to be and what are we called to do? Why are we coming together every Sunday? Why are we gathering together throughout the week? If a church is going to move forward, it must do so in unity. I don't know, have you guys ever seen a, the crew teams row in the Olympics? Now, now, as I watch them on television, it looks really simple and really, really easy. Like, how hard can that be? They're putting oars in water together, right? Uh, but, but when you begin to, to think about it and you see all that they are doing, they are rowing together in rhythm. And if you think that's easy, just just go try and do it, just with two people. Uh, 
they're rowing eight people all together and there's so many technical things they have to to breathe together they have to know different speeds to row the boat they have to turn their wrists at the same time because if one of them catches their oar on the water incorrectly it throws everything off there's so many little things that go into it they have to to act in unison they have to be going all in the same direction that seems obvious right If one person in the boat is rowing the opposite direction, that's going to hinder things. And so the reason that we're we're looking at this this doctrine of the church, of what is the church called to be and to do, is that that we have to be working together. That we, we have to be unified in the direction that we're going. We have to be rowing at the same rate following the instructions of there's a, a person in the boat called the, the coxswain who's, who's responsible for steering the boat and coordinating the, the power and the rhythm of the rowing. And, and there's so much that can go wrong in crew. And, and it's, it's hard to get it right. But when it, when it begins to go right, it's a beautiful thing. There's a, a rowing coach named George Yeoman Pocock, and he's very famous in rowing circles. He says this, it's a great art is rowing. It's the finest art there is. It's a symphony of motion. And when you're rowing well, why it's nearing perfection. And when you near perfection, you're touching the divine. It touches the you of yous, which is your soul. And he's, he's using hyperbole there. But I think it's a, it's, a, it's a fitting description of when a church comes together and is united and is pursuing the same goals. They are pursuing worshiping and submitting to the Lordship of Christ. Then it's a beautiful thing. That's what Ephesians 4 talks about. And that is my heart for our church, that, that we would begin to move towards Christ together. And that this crew coach speaks in hyperbole, but... but It's true for the church that when we are all moving in unity together towards Christ, we get to to experience God. We get to be the temple of God, the household of God, which is what we're going to look at together in this series. And I'm I'm excited to to begin this whole process, to to be moving forward together. And And I pray this was encouraging to you this morning and that in, in the days and weeks to come as we study the church that it will have an impact upon our heart and our lives and I, I promise that it will help you also understand the world around you better. We'll get into the details of that but if we understand the church, if we understand the big scope of human history, everything else falls into place.